Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. Well, you could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night. Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel listener on the New Books Network. Today, we've got a very special guest, Smith Ewell, and I'm interviewing him together here with my co-host, Kimon Fontakidis. Uh, Smith, why don't you introduce yourself in a few seconds in the way you would if you met some interesting and intelligent strangers at a, biz- a business networking event, imagining that Kimon and I are the interesting intelligent strangers for the sake of example? Well, I'm also going to imagine that it's only on video in this new world we're living in, but hopefully soon it's in, in person. What I would tell them is that I'm the CEO and co-founder of We Localize. My wife, Julie, and I started the company in the late 90s uh, from a fundamental need. When we first met, we had no common language. You and your wife? That's right. <laughs> really? <laughs> really. What, what language What language does she speak? <laughs> she uh, speaks Latvian and Russian. Wow. We met in Germany. We were both learning German, so we had a bit of broken German, but all of our initial dates were group dates <laughs> with my friends and her friends because her friend spoke English. So I learned firsthand the importance of a, an interpreter and a translator. <laughs> so I, I've been in somewhat similar situations, but how, how far did that, like, somebody has to compromise. Who took the, like, she, did she go with the, did, did she go for the English or did you, or was German the language or, or what, what, what was she dove, She dove into English very quickly. And in fact, uh, we got married one year later uh, when I asked her to marry me. Uh, I chose an opportune time because I'm still not sure she fully understood what I was asking, but she said that. <laughs> She said yes anyway, and and that was twenty nine years ago. Well, fantastic! I've I've had we've had quite a variety of introductions on the podcast, but this is probably the the most memorable and compelling. So, congratulations for that. And I actually met you through, um, well, really through Kimon because um, because he's the he's the translator translation company leader of the two of us. Um, Kimon, why, would you like to explain why you invited Smith onto the podcast? What, 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 because well, I, it I mean, was your initiative. Yeah. So Smith, I mean, in fact, I didn't, I've actually, uh, as Smith is quite a famous person in the industry. Um, and we localized the company that he founded is a, is a, is a really big company. I mean, it's over, I don't want to give you the number. It's definitely over $200 million um in in terms of revenue and um it's one of the leaders basically in our industry i've known obviously smith and his company for a long time and um uh, but it was actually through veronique the current ceo of argos that actually we i got introduced to smith and um but like this is a great and i just love your your beginning smith because it's like this is exactly what we're looking for so like you met your wife it's so there's already an international you're somewhere you're in germany like why why are you in why are you in Germany? And like, maybe just take us through maybe the early years and then like how, how, how you ended up do, setting up this company basically. Cause that's, that's what we're, that's what we're super interested in here. Sure. Well, I was in the army stationed in Germany. That's, that's why I was there. Okay. And I was in the first Gulf war. Oh, wow. 
And I, I was uh, I was there for six months. My unit uh, actually led the main attack. And then I got back on a Wednesday, back to Germany. I went to Frankfurt, Germany to visit a friend for the weekend that Friday. And I met my wife, Julia, that Saturday night. Wow. Can I ask, Smith, though, just because it's a very unusual for us. In fact, for sure, you're the first, um, I'd say, combat veteran that we've had here. Did you, were you actually in, you were actually in battle? I mean, were you actually... Yes, in we led the main attack in the first Gulf War. I was a field artillery officer, and uh, fortunately, uh, that war turned out uh, successfully. Uh, and then I came back to Germany, and then a year or so later, I got out of the Army. We got married, we moved to the United States, and we worked on, we localized at night and on weekends, and then off it went. So, so I'm going to go, go, re, 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 rewind a bit from that. So it was, was going into the, the armed services your sort of plan in life? Because I, there are many origins stories for entrepreneurs, but going, being, serving your country as a, as a soldier, as an artilleryman, isn't necessarily the first thing that people who grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur choose to do. So, so when you were a teenager or when you were even younger than that, did you imagine soldiering or business? Did you have like a plan for your life? Well, when I was a teenager in, in the States, we've got what are called ROTC scholarships. And the government will pay for your entire university education if you are lucky enough to and fortunate enough to win one of those scholarships, and I was. And that was when I was, I guess, 17. So from that moment, I knew that the next four years, I would be in university, of course, and with the full scholarship. And then after that, I would owe four, mil four years of military service in exchange for the four years of university. I didn't plan on staying longer so I did get out as, as I expected after four years because I was more interested in being an entrepreneur than staying in the military. Okay, so it was an entrepreneurial act to become a soldier. Right. It, was a, it, it was, say, a I mean, was a deal. It was a deal. It was a timing. <laughs> it was a timing. It was a timing. good deal. <laughs> I mean, I, I think a lot, I, I knew people who did that. I, um, I knew people who did that as well. And, you know, I think there's also benefit to you going as an officer. But I guess you weren't expecting when you signed up for it that there would be a war. So you no. ended up <laughs> you ended up basically getting a, a serious. Um, and I'm just wondering, I have to, I, I, Richard, you can go back to the history. But I'm like, ha, how much of an impact, like, you know, they talk about, I mean, I, I'm sure it, it, to some level it's traumatic or whatever, just the experience of being in battle. How, does that... Have you brought any of that? Has any of that come into your business? Like, or is there anything from the military or, 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 or that part of your life that you brought into your entrepreneur journey, entrepreneurship journey? Of course. I would say that's one of the, the biggest, most influential components from not just the entrepreneur or business aspect, but my whole life. That's, that certainly changed the trajectory of the, the rest of my life. The, the things that I learned during the Gulf so, War, like, but also example, in the military what, generally. For example, what what can you like like what 
are there, is it values? Is it a sense of organization? Is it like, what is it that you're, that you, do you feel like you've brought from that into? Well, let's face it, being an entrepreneur, there are ups and downs and, and sometimes business ideas don't even work out and you move on to another one. So the experience in the Gulf War influenced that, the ability to cope with that because the war created a situation where you were stripped down to only your own personal strength of character, meaning there's no wallet, you have no identification, there's no walls, there's no, all the things in your life that you, you give you bearing. We had no bearings because there were no land features either. It was one giant desert. So without anything to reference, uh, you learn to cope with adversity uh, with as best you can your, you know, your internal stamina and drive and all those things are critical to, I think, entrepreneurship. It's easier <laughs> if you've been through, like, I just feel like I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to look, but I feel like I'm so weak compared to some like that I haven't done anything like, do you know what I mean? Like, the, the, like, I think it's easy, like the struggles that we talk about in entrepreneurship, I guess are re- relatively easy when you've been definitely put it in, into per- perspective when you're, uh, when your life's on the line, I'm not sure it gets any more extreme than that. Exactly. So, so a, a friend of mine, uh, I don't think he even knows him, who's just become CTO. He's a young man, brilliant software developer, turned down a job with a gaffer type company to, be CTO of engineering in a in a head of engineering in some well-funded startup, and um, he had no experience of managing people. And I lent him a, a the guide, the manager tool guide, which is founded by ex-American soldiers. I think Mark Horseman's one of them, and Manager Tools is the top one of the top management podcasts in the world. And they're constantly referencing military doctrines and concepts of leadership. And did you get? leadership training on as part of your four years four years of service yeah i certainly did and i would argue it it's maybe the best leadership training available anywhere in the world so i was really lucky to get that i had leadership training throughout university in the in the program we had military classes uh, twice a week the whole time i was in university and then maneuvers sometimes on weekends and during the summer, and then four years of active duty training. So it was an amazing school of leadership. Because I remember being put in my place very much that when I was a young man in the 20s leading my first company, I used to very proudly say, we're a decentralized organization, we're not like the army, until I met someone who taught leadership in the British Royal Navy, who said, well, you have to understand that we pushed leadership right down to the most junior level on every ship for the most simple reason that if at any moment the guy you report to gets a bullet through their head, and if you don't know what to do, everyone dies, then we're failing. And it was only at that stage I became aware of the fact that leadership is for everyone, not just for the for the man or woman at the top, and I don't, I don't know, I, and I have a feeling that the American concepts are pretty similar to the, the that that British one. I I think everybody's a leader in one one capacity or another. We're either leading our, our family members, our friends, our colleagues, 
clients. It's all, look, we, we all interact and we all have ideas and we're all pursuing those and it takes more than one to realize them, which involves leadership. So everybody's leading in one way or another. Mm. Thank you. Well, thank you. And just for anyone listening who's hearing this for the first time, say, as ignorant as I was 30 years ago, if, if you're just going to say one or two concepts of leadership that you picked up that you could share, assuming someone starts from a zero level of knowledge about what that might mean, are there any specific examples you can give or things you're particularly focused in other than everyone has everyone is has leadership potential or everyone is a leader? Are there any other particular things you'd pull out that maybe you run in your own business or you observe in others that you think, yes, these people have got it? Well, when anyone asks me to define leadership, here's here's how I would describe it. I think it's the the ability to inspire others to achieve what they previously thought was not possible. That's good. <laughs> the the, leader, the definition I got from the, the the Royal Navy was the ability to lead a group of people towards a common to work towards a common purpose willingly with willingly being a really important part of it. It's not just compulsion, sticks and carrots, but somehow giving people the will. But anyway, so so when you chose, going back to your teenage years, you knew that entrepreneurship might be for you, but you're going to have this sort of deal with the American government and people you'd serve in return for a, a, a scholarship if you were smart enough to get it, which you obviously were. So did you have like business role models in your family? Were, they, were you brought up by entrepreneurs or did you admire entrepreneurs? Did you know it from an early age and where did that come from? I was interested from a very early age. Absolutely. Uh, I think I was born with the interest. My father was a lawyer, uh, not an entrepreneur, um, but from just an early age, I, I, I loved business challenges and, and business ideas. Did you so do was, anything? Like, yeah, was what, was there, the first, was what was the first thing you did? Sorry, we're talking over each other, which our producer hates. But, <laughs> um, what, what, what did he do? And, yeah, did he make any money as a kid? I did, yes. And I did just about anything that was possible from my parents would tell me if I cleaned out the house, I could keep it all and, and sell it in a yard sale. So I would take it all out to the... the side of the road near the near the mailbox and just set up all of the junk that I cleaned out of the house and I'd sit there all day long and wait people drive by and hopefully uh, they'd buy uh, buy an item or two uh, from that to the classic American teenager boy job of mowing lawns had a little sure. lawn business these were all things I had to do before I could drive and then once I could drive, then I started doing, for example, uh, an uncle had a really large record collection. He said, if I picked it up, I could have it. Well, I drove the truck, loaded it, took it again back to the side of the road, sat there all day. I sold every single one of those records. Now, this, I love this because this is, you're doing, and this is something that is, it's an art you're doing face-to-face -face sales like really you're doing face-to-face -face sales and call it whatever you want at the small little level but that is hard and not everybody can do that 
<laughs> and that is a great school. I mean, because because I also I I I went to, I did something like that as well. I just can't emphasize enough for people that are listening. Like, get try going out and selling something to somebody. Like, and not just like sending an email. I'm saying looking at somebody in the eye and say, "I've got this. It costs five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to buy? It's really really nice. It's a really good one." Uh, Right. I mean, isn't that the kind of stuff you you had it, it, to it, try it on the side of the road too? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Waving people down. Yeah. And 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 what what was the best? Did you have any like catastrophes or or, or like what was the worst experience and the best experience? Because I think it sounds so innocent, like a Hollywood movie in a nice sunny day. But probably there were rainy days and there were there was probably uh, maybe the police. Get, well, so what was the worst thing that happened? And what was the best the best deal you ever did? And say before you were eighteen. The best and the worst were. Uh, the same side of, of the same, uh, different sides of the same coin. So w when I was, I think I was 11, the school was having a fundraiser and they would send you home with these boxes of candy bars. And ideally you were selling the candy bars to all of your family members and maybe the next door neighbor. But I took it a step further and just walked around the entire neighborhood. And there was a contest. Ah. And, and uh, I was fortunate enough to, to win the contest. That was the good part. The challenging part was the prize was a trip in a little airplane. There was a little airport near the school and I guess the airport sponsored it and the prize was we'll take you up in the plane and fly you around for a little while. And they took me up the plane and they asked well, do you want to do the roller coaster and I said what's the roller coaster and they said we'll show you. So then the plane took a nosedive. It's just a little single engine plane and then it came back up again as if you're on a roller coaster and I got sick as a dog and I got sick all over the airplane too, so I don't think they liked it either. So it wasn't much of a successful prize winning. You you touched on something there, Smith, that I think is that we that we also look for in these conversations or, or whatever. But so you you said you won the contest. So uh, competitiveness and like, would you consider? So basically, do you play? I mean, are you? Uh, did you play sports growing up? I and mean, would you consider yourself basically a competitive person? I absolutely yes. I freely admit it. I uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I love competition. Yes. Okay. You, do do uh, I, I do you have kids by any chance? Yes. And do you play ever play board games with them, or did you yes. ever play board games with them when they were younger? We played the board games nonstop during COVID. Yes. Did you did you did you did you let them win? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> What a surprise! <laughs> nope. Yeah, that's cool. Um, did, did did they ever win? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Okay. Well, my daughter's older. She's she's twenty four, and we spent a lot of time with my brother and his kids during COVID in our own little uh, safety bubble, so to speak. <laughs> and they uh, they're a little younger. The youngest being fourteen. But they would they would team up and to try to crush me and yes they were mm. they were successful occasionally yes and maybe before we move on to the more businessy side I think talking about parenting competitiveness obviously was there somewhere from somewhere in your childhood and you've recreated that for your own kids but 
obviously as a successful entrepreneur you're reasonably comfortably off i would imagine and you're you said your father was a lawyer and if american lawyers meet the stereotype you weren't poor as kids but you were being encouraged to make your own money if you were giving advice to anyone about how to let your kids interact with money do you do you think what you experience being made to work for it is right or do you think do you think it can go too far what's the right way to parent with respect to money and kids well i think it different it's different by the the child and with some myself i was more comfortable with being pushed out of the nest as the saying goes mm. and some are not as comfortable i'm from a big family i'm number 7 of 8 children oh wow so we had a big nest <laughs> and <laughs> and uh with everyone being very different so i would argue my parents were quite successful because they they adapted with different styles depending on the personalities of, of of the children i was very comfortable with being independent and they uh the scholarship they provided uh, room and board uh and then i in the military paid for tuition and then i got a job in college to earn my spending money got it and so jumping forward to the translation, what was the and, you, and obviously there was like the funny story you needed to talk to your your soon to be girlfriend, fiance, then later wife. But when was it that you realised that translation was going to be? What was the sort of origin story of a business where it wasn't just about you know pursuing your personal goals, let's say, but you know making money? When did you first start figuring out you could charge for translation? How did how did the company come into being? One of the earliest things that struck me after I went to Germany was the realization that the whole world doesn't speak English. <laughs> and let's face it Americans to a great extent grow up that way unless they're fortunate enough to travel the world or have multilingual parents. Otherwise, it's not something that you you experience. So it wasn't until I experienced it in Germany firsthand that I appreciated that there was going to be a need and then the World Wide Web took off and the light that went off in my head was it well if it's worldwide any website could have anybody in the world visit it instantaneously and of course they're going to expect it to be in their language so that's that's how it all came together but like how did I'm so curious because I don't know the story at all um so you said you were doing it, you were moonlighting. I guess you had another, you had a job basically or something. Yes. You, you guys were doing other stuff and then you were moonlighting. This, uh, the, we localized. But so like, what was, what, what was the origin? Like, did you just start, I mean, who were, who were your clients and, and, and what were you, because that's the big picture, right? I mean, like, yeah, all these, you know, the whole world needs, needs their websites localized and, 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 and needs their sales material and all that stuff localized, but just sort of like on your microcosm, like you must have started with, what was your core, like your first thing that you were, that you were working on? Well, the one thing I would advise all entrepreneurs is just, you got to have some sort of edge, some, some sort of angle to wh whatever you decide you're going to do. You, you really got to spend a lot of time, I would suggest on what exactly is going to be 
different or unique to what you're doing. And for us, it was the internet because at the very beginning, long before Google started, we figured out in the top 10 search engines of the time, Alta Vista, Excite, <laughs> GoTo, all these things that are long gone, we figured out how to be number one anytime anyone typed in the word translation. Awesome. This Amazing. was before the SEO acronym even existed. That acronym didn't so even Why exist. don't you own translations.com? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that was a good URL. You're right. Uh, but, but, um, but so you had the idea, but you, you weren't a translator yourself, I assume. So you, if you sort of like your first client, you presume there was a stage at which you found someone who wanted something translated and you had to like put together you know, the, the service in return for the money they were going to pay you. Can you just talk us through that one? Because the first client is an amazing moment for the history of it. Like, I'm, let's hear the first client of We Localize. Tell us that one. It's another amazing story because our very first client was a client who only wanted to translate one word. <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. In an industry where you charge by the word, what am I going to charge You're you? You made cents. a quarter. <laughs> yeah. So, no kidding. It was one word. Our very first client, pain client, was one word, and the word was Pathfinder. And this oh, wow. was at a time when my wife was pregnant, about to deliver. We were trying to figure out if the business was going to survive. And lo and behold, our very first customer, Pathfinder. And we just thought that was a sign that okay well here's here's the path so uh with one word what are you going to do uh well what we did is we went to the library and found every multilingual dictionary we could find in the six languages they wanted spent an afternoon in the library and did it ourselves because it's only one word right <laughs> Yeah. And it was too much trouble for them. Yeah. <laughs> for them. That was, uh, interesting, because people yeah. often people don't understand that you know you're prov it's not just the thing you're doing, but it's getting the problem solved, isn't it? That, you're just solving the problem. So from there, it took off because shortly after, Cisco came and they had a large project, and that fortunately was successful. It, it took off from there. But how did you how did you find the Pathfinder client and what, what, what did you have your own website and that was generating leads or were you that was the edge I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So our edge was that we were purely virtual. Okay. We were in the basement. All we had was a website. Okay. And so we figured that well, let's figure out how to make the website successful, and we did. Early on, one of the funniest things we did for to make yourself cop, come to the top of the search rankings, you could uh, select the background of your web page in any color you wanted. <laughs> and we selected white, but then we would put the word translation in at the bottom about a thousand times. And white, on white, white, white on white, white on white. So you wouldn't <laughs> see it. What? One of those. the good old days, the nineties, I believe those were the nineties. Yes. Those are probably so the nineties. Then you just pop up number one because you had the word translation a thousand times on your, on your website. So that was the angle. Okay. So Smith, I want to understand how, cause you seem like a, like well thought, like you think things through, like, so you planned this business. 
So did you actually come up with sort of like a strategy and a business plan and like just choose this or was it just you were doing other stuff and then somebody like, like, like was this a very well thought out? Um, because a lot of people, they just are trying different things and they're, you know, and then they, or, or, you know, they get some opportunity and then they build a business around the opportunity. But I sort of get the sense, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, that you were actually said, you know what, this is the thing I want to do. And you actually set out and, and, and did it. Is, is, which would be the more accurate? In my mind, it began with a concept. And, and then I had to learn. Because it wasn't, I, I was in the Army. Right. When the first client asked for a localization project, I didn't even know what the word meant. So I was really intrigued to learn and curious about how does all this get done. I love taking a challenge, which I know nothing about, and trying to figure it out. Uh, so the concept was just help American businesses go global with a variety of services. We'd help you find an export partner, an interpreter, translator, and then I needed another angle. So I thought, well, if I create a place on the internet where people can meet, buy and sell exporters of different products, then they'll probably need translation. So they're a captured audience. So we created this thing called the Import Export Bulletin Board. It, it, you could call it an international version of eBay before eBay ever existed. And that took off and it was membership based credit card. So each day there was cash flow. No way. I think I used that. I think I used that back in the 90s because I was doing loads of sort of little things trying to find my way back then. I hadn't met Kimon at this stage. So that was later. But this rings a few bells. I'm slightly dislike. This is so interesting, Smith. So like because you're this is basically now I don't know the dates exactly. What date is this? Like when are when is this happening? What year is this exactly? Like is this the 90s? 98. 99. Okay, right, exactly. It's just around the dot-com. It's the dot-com thing is going on, right? And so you yes. were basically setting up, it almost felt like you were setting up an internet. Uh, is, is that where, where like this was going? Like you were setting up and then an internet company, one of the, an internet company, and then it turned into some, did it then turn into? It, well, it wasn't an internet company. The idea, well, it was an internet-based company. Right. Um, but the idea was, again, help people go global. And the import-export bulletin board was just a, a captured audience. That, a lead gen, lead gen, basically. Yeah. I, I wanted a place where people could congregate, and then I would market translation to them. Got it. Now, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want any translation. But, man, they wanted that import-export bulletin board, and the membership took off. And then we got super lucky. I can't say this was by planning or anything else. It was just pure luck. We sold it right before the internet bubble burst. Wow. So you got some money. At the height. Yeah. We got some money. And then we plowed that back into we localize and kept on going from there. So what did you, and this is, actually, I mean, I have a, like a microcosm. Uh, I was doing similar stuff. I was always like much, much smaller than you, but I have a microcosm of that as well. What did you do with that money? Like you came with, the, you came up with, you, you, like, what was your, what was the priority? Like, where did you, what did you put that into? Um, Our first acquisition. Oh, really? In, German, in Germany. OK. 
Hey, I didn't know that. So yeah. early on, you bought a, and I don't know, can you tell us about, like, what, tell us, well, this is just very interesting. So yeah. how, how did you buy a company in Germany? Why did you buy a company in Germany? Um, well, I mentioned when the first customer asked about localization, honestly, it's the first time I'd heard it. But of course, wanted to figure it out. And because I didn't know what it was, I had to find somebody else who did. And it was a small company in Germany. So I was the project manager and the salesperson. And this small company in Germany was everything else. They, they had in-house, a couple in-house translators. They knew how to make translation kits. But most importantly, they were on the cutting edge of the leading technology at the time, which was translation memory. And the reason I won that first big job with Cisco is because I was most competitive, the fastest turnaround and most competitive cost. And the only way I did that was with translation memory because this guy named Thilo Schuler in Saarbrücken, Germany, knew how to create these amazing macros to process files. And we ultimately were working so close together uh, that we, they were our first acquisition. And, and this, sold the, the bulletin board. And this is the second thing for anyone listening, because we tried to draw it generally. So your first edge was seeing the internet opportunity and reckoning you're going to have a top-ranking website. But then you started having a technical edge, which you know might not be visible to your competitors, but basically meant you could be faster and have lower cost than someone doing it entirely manually, presumably. Yeah, that edge has been, been with us from the beginning. It's just... We call them our four pillars, and, and innovation is one of those four pillars. And that's been that way ever since the beginning. Customer service, quality, <clears throat> innovation, and global teamwork are the four pillars. But from day one, we were, how can we innovate? How can we innovate? How can we innovate? So, and not only that, though, so it, I, I'm really interested because your story is definitely different because you also, in your d- acquisitions, are in your DNA as well. It's not only uh, because you started very early, very early on in your in your history. You started with so what? So how did you like? How did you take that? I mean, so when did you decide? Was that your was that a, your primary growth catalyst, or did you? Because you know, there's different strategies. So you know, you can take this conversation in so many interesting ways. But a lot of people they set up armies of sales teams, right? These massive sales teams, and they get out and they hit the pavement and they they do that. And then, you know, I think there's also growth via um, acquisition as well. And I mean, I assume you've done, I'm sure you've done, you've done both, but maybe you can just speak to did the fact that you started so early doing an acquisition. Did that really also be part of that ended up being part of your DNA as well? Yes. Yes. We, over the years have bought 19 companies. That wow. was the very, that was the very first one. So yes, from the very beginning, it was part of our DNA and, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that the majority of the leadership in our company actually came through acquisitions. So a whole lot of people still with us, including from the very first one. No way. Cool. Yeah. Still with us today. And were the deals, because Kimon and I both had smaller businesses than you are today, but sometimes people would talk, come knocking on our doors saying, 
for sale and it, it was Keeman who spotted this he thought I want to be on the, the deals were so unattractive he thought I want to be on the other side of the table because and and buying there is a very illiquid market in small companies there aren't that many and assuming you weren't spending hundreds of millions of dollars did you find that actually the the the, the valuations were such that it, you know basically you know three years down the line the, the acquisitions had paid for themselves and some more. I mean, I, I, you obviously can't reveal too many secrets, but would you confirm that for a smaller entrepreneur, buying small companies can be an incredibly good deal? Yes, I can confirm that because we, we did it many times and we would structure the deals with earnouts. So you're yeah. right, over time, if, and if the business is successful, its own cash flow, I mean, that's what the owner is selling. They're selling future cash flow. Uh, so you can structure it uh, where we would borrow from the bank to pay the owner upfront and then an earn out over time. Yep. There's a lesson to learn there, listeners. <laughs> can you just take a speak a little bit? I'm curious what your opinion is though about um, sales in general and sales, so let's say organic growth um, versus growth uh, via acquisition and, 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 how hard, like, I mean, did you find um, setting up a sales organization, you know, you, you've obviously went from you were the guy uh, to, I assume you have a pretty robust sales team. Um, but still, what's your, do you have a take on that? I mean, because, you know, there's, there's, you, you find companies that, that they just don't do acquisitions. They just say, no, we're, we're going to just grow organically. And then I think you have other companies that almost grow exclusively via acquisition. Do you have an opinion or a feeling or any comment about that? You have to do both, and we've been doing both uh, since the very beginning. In 2000, we brought in our first private equity partner. I think in this industry, I was one of the very first to have a private equity partner. And the thesis was that if the business was so successful with only internet sales, what would happen if we added some salespeople? So in classic entrepreneur fashion, it was perfect timing because we closed on that, a, uh, hired a bunch of salespeople, and then the internet bubble burst. And, and uh, classically, that's the thing. And being an entrepreneur, you just never know what's around the corner. We always try to say, what, which bus is going to come around the corner and get us? And <laughs> how, how can we make sure it doesn't? Well, it came around the corner because the internet bubble burst. We had a big client go bankrupt. And unfortunately, we had to lay off that sales team not six months after we oh my God. put it in or place because it was batting down the hatches during the, the dot-com bust. But we got through it because I think we made the tough decisions early where a lot of companies wait too long and then you're out of money. But we did cut and we cut early in order to survive, very painful. These were friends I had to let go, but the company as a whole survived as a result. Uh, so over the years, we brought in the sales team again, and we've got quite a successful sales team now and quite a successful M&A uh, capability. So it's both. And how, yeah, so I have to believe though, very unusual. So you basically 20 years ago, you brought in private equity. Like, don't those guys usually stick around for like five years? <laughs> like, how do you even, how are you even like, so what, how is that story? Because I think that's like super interesting for people. Like, so you brought in, I mean, maybe you could just walk us through it. I mean, and then was it just like a, 
I don't know how much you want to share or can share, but like, first of all, what was your thinking? Like you wanted the money to grow faster and then were you giving away a majority stake? And then did you, well, and basically how can you still be like, because like my understanding of private equity is these guys, they had, they want to exit after um, they have a fund and it's, you know, usually five to seven years max is what you hear. And then, and then they want to move on. Well, you've obviously been <laughs> doing that for, for, for multiple years. I'm just curious how that, they, you well, know, that how was that... very unusual as well, because I was with my first private equity partner for 10 years. Oh, wow. And that's very unusual in that world. You're right. Uh, three to five years is quite typical, but I was with my first partner for 10 years. And I think it's because of uh, the reason we became partners in the beginning, uh, which, which is why it lasted so long. I was looking for a partner not because we needed the money. The business, fortunately, was very successful right from the start. But I was nervous that I didn't know enough about business. And mm. because the business was successful and any entrepreneur, their whole future, their economic future is the business. So if that's gone, then you're in deep trouble. So I thought, I, I need some advice. Yeah, I'm successful. Well, what happens when the bus comes around the corner? I don't know what I don't know. And that approach... I think created a relationship with the investor, which was just very natural, do the right thing, build a great company and the rest will follow. There was never a discussion in the beginning about we're going to do ABC and then we're going to sell it in three years. We, that's just never the way we talked. And we stayed in it together for 10 years because we loved working together and because the business kept thriving. Uh, I'm on my third private equity investor now. And they all had that in common. So fortunately for me, it's been a great formula. I mean, so, that's, yeah, I sorry, Richard. So first, I've had some experience with private equity as well. I, we, haven't, we haven't gotten any, but like, first of all, that's what they always sell you. Like they, they're going to give you all this added value stuff. Uh, you know, it's not only the money. They're going to give you business experience and stuff like that. I think it sounds to me that you did a great job of choosing because I think that a lot of people can end up, I, I, it, let's put it to private equity, it's just a word and it doesn't, it's, but let's, what's behind it is people, right? And you obviously, I don't know whether it was the size or maybe there was a personal relationship, but somehow you successfully chose partners because I think that it's not, it, you made it sound like it's a nice rosy experience. I don't think it is. I don't think it always is the case. You know, even in our industry, you've seen it. It doesn't always go. Sometimes it goes pear-shaped. So I don't know how you did that, but that's pretty impressive. I mean, is it just relationships or I don't know? We, we picked partners uh, who shared our values, and it's really that simple. Um, if someone began the meeting with, okay, this is the plan to exit in three years, in other words, putting the cart before the horse, then, okay, well, we wouldn't do a second meeting with them. But if the conversation began with, how can we together build a great company? Let's talk about that. The rest will follow. It's never been about the first conversation being economics. Of course, economics are there. Private equity companies are in the business of, of making money for their investors, of course. But I think that's the, the natural outcome of building an insanely great company, which has always been my motivation. Mm. 
And I just uh, presumably you said you're on your third partner. So was the second and third partner, were they providing the exit for the previous private equity partner? So you basically swap one fund for another, more or less. Is that how it worked? Exactly the way it worked. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. And each partner was uh, successively bigger. As we got bigger, yeah. we took in bigger partners. Yeah. And one of the things that strikes myself and Kimon as well as we see younger people coming through the sort of the startup world is they don't understand B2B sales, the slow sales cycle, how long it takes to move from, you know, a first inquiry to actually getting a project. And presumably, I'm just saying, presumably, can you talk someone who doesn't understand B2B sales, the sort of time period it takes from like someone first getting in touch via your wonderful website or traditional relationships to actually starting to do business? Because I I think patience is quite a necessary thing in B2B sales. And I don't know you, Smith, but you look like someone who's both ambitious and also aware of the fact that even if you're in a hell of a hurry, you have to be quite patient. Would you, could you talk to that topic, patience in B2B sales? Yeah, because we had to learn that, uh, there were times when something would happen quickly and you were cheering and then other times when it would take months uh, and you were hoping to pay the bills in the interim. So we had a bit of both because we were online and we had a free quote form on the website, which was kind of novel at the time. Those would come in two or three a day because we owned the word translation in the search engines. And sometimes uh, the project was translate my birth certificate. <laughs> and so that would start that day and end that day. But then sometimes the customer would want a big project, for example, the Cisco project. And that took uh, probably more than a month because there was a contract that had to be reviewed. I had to find my cousin who was a lawyer to review the contract. And all that took a lot a lot of time and you weren't sure what was going to happen if it was either going to come to fruition either. In the meantime, you, you don't have any cash coming in. So it's a balance of both. Uh, we were hoping to get larger clients because those are more longer term versus translating a birth certificate. So we pivoted towards that. Right. That, I was going to have and, a follow up, follow up question, a follow up question. Away, away from all of the uh, small yeah. yeah, and that was going to be my follow-up question. Was like, what, at what stage in the history of the company did you realize that the, the future wasn't in restaurant menus and <laughs> and birth certificates? Uh, because usually it's one huge. I suppose Cisco was quite early, but there must have been a moment when it became obvious that you you needed to focus on larger accounts. And did you have like a threshold? We're not going to do business below a certain size of project, or so you could focus on the big ones. We pivoted away from that pretty quickly. You're right, the menus and the birth certificates. We got out of that uh, after the first year. Mm-hmm. But we were also lucky that Cisco came in the first year. So we pivoted towards uh, larger clients. We didn't have a sort of a set number or anything like that. But what we did do is stop any of the really small stuff. Good. I'd like to ask uh, where, so like, wh- what's the, and, and again, share whatever you can share. And this isn't a translation question as much as a business question, but what's your like goal? Like, where are you taking this business? Like it's, it's such an interesting story. It's been, you've been doing it, you know, for a while, for it sounds like more than 20 years. Um, you mentioned 
multiple private equity partners. Um, I know you're growing whatever systematically every year. I mean, do you have a, do you have a, what's, what's your, you know, what's your, what are you trying to achieve? How far do you want to take it? And what do you want to like, what do you want? Cause you know, you've, you, 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 you've been very successful. You're that you, you are like, for those that don't know, I mean, I'm in this industry. I mean, Smith has created basically one of the best, biggest uh, transition companies in the world. Um, and I, which actually, by the way, you also might want to talk because you're not really offering only translations, right? You're all you're offering a lot of periphery, um, periphery things as well. I mean, and, and, and maybe you don't even see this anymore as translation. And maybe this is something you want to talk about. <clears throat> you're right. Translation as a task is less yeah. than half of what we do now. Isn't that amazing? So 10 years ago, the type of services that make up our revenue today, uh, less, well, sorry, more than half of those are services we weren't even in. So this, right. is, how, this is how businesses evolve. Take, for example, uh, AI. And we help our customers cha- train their chatbots in multiple languages. Well, 10 years ago, that was zero for us. Today, that's a $50 million business for us. So this gives you a sense of how it evolves. Uh, so what, what does that mean to the future? Um, well, what drives us is, is curiosity, challenge, and an overwhelming passion to, to find and reach our potential. And... Where does it go from here? Well, I think that potential has a long way to go. I, I don't think we're, we're close, but we're not there yet in terms of the full potential of the company, ourselves as a team, ourselves as individuals. And that's what we're trying to inspire, back to my definition of leadership. If, if you want a place where you relish the opportunity to find out how far you can go, and this I learned in the military as well, because you really get pushed in the military. How far can you really go? That's what I want to find out. Because I'm not sure there's a limit to it yet. And one day if we get there, I guess I'll find out. But I still think we've got a long way to you, go. You, you, you talk about this people. And actually, you actually haven't talked that much about people. But I know you care about people. Because I've actually been... I just see, I don't know, I, I've obviously know through whatever, I've been to events and stuff like that, and I know you guys, um, like for example, uh, at, I don't know if you still do this well, <laughs> you're obviously not doing it now because of COVID, but back in the day when we used to go to conferences, I remember you guys used to have like meetups, I don't know whether it was your whole team or like you'd get like a whole bunch of people together, but I think, and maybe you want to talk about that a little bit, because I think it's also like huge for us in our industry, because we're all, like we really only have our people and so, like, I think you've done a great job in general. I mean, honestly, the people, all the people I've ever met from your company have been really, like, I like them. Like, they're, they're something, you, you've created a good culture, basically. And that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, we only, you know, we're probably wrapping this up soon. I mean, it's hard to get all of this in in an hour. But, but maybe you can just a couple words about how you managed to do that. And, and it's one word. It's in its core to our brand. Our brand, in my mind, has to stand for one word at the core, which is trust. Whether we acquire a company, that's the first thing I tell them. Our goal is going to be earn your trust. It's not going to happen day one. You don't know me. I'm not expecting you to know me and trust me day one. Same for a customer, same for an employee. So we have to earn that, and that takes work. 
And once you earn that, then you've got the ability through that to do anything working together and working in the context of there's two people goals we have as a company. The first is we have to continually demonstrate and prove once we have your trust that we care. Uh, and that's simple to say, but harder to do day in, day out across there's 2000 people in our company now. Right. So how do you do it? I'm <laughs> well, if we do it through the second part of our, our second people goal, uh, which is have them trust that we can answer the question, where can I go from here? Why even join We Localize? Why stay at We Localize? Because hopefully you believe it is the best place to realize the full extent of your potential. That's our sense of purpose. How far can we go as a person, as a team, as a company? What is the limit to that potential? Do you want to find out? Are you curious? And if you're driven by that, it's a fantastic fit because that's the way I think and, of course, the way the company thinks because that's the culture we've, we've built. So that, that's, what, that's that simple. Prove we care and then be able to tell you where you can go from here. Whether it's horizontal, whether it's lateral, this isn't just the corporate ladder. It doesn't mean just promotion. It means challenging yourself personally and professionally. Maybe make new jobs, a horizontal move. Maybe you go to a different country. Maybe you diff join a different part of the company. Uh, are you growing? And it's not just trying to build a company that's the biggest. That's not my goal. My goal is to build a company that is the best in its chosen industry. You're clearly asking them and you're communicating as well the way you're talking now, though, uh, with what they want. Like, do they want, because this part of it is what do employees, because well, really that's what you're talking about is where, what do employees actually want? Like, what do these professionals want to do? Because it, as you said, it's not necessarily climbing up a corporate ladder. It may be, I want to go work in Germany, or it may be, I want to work on this cool new AI thing. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's, but, you know, listening, <laughs> you don't know what they want if you don't listen. So. No. Yeah, Kimon mentioned we're, we're time constrained, and is there any way you've published like because like how to, is is not every leader communicates so clearly. In fact, few communicate so clearly, and I think it's great that you've done that, Smith. But having communicated that, it's it's easier to say than to do. <laughs> and you obviously, and I'm sure you'd be the first to admit that you know it's not always easy to make it happen, and for sure there are mistakes along the way. But is there any way you've written down or published articles or things people could read if they wanted to find out more about how we localized did this? Have you published anything? I'm sorry to say I haven't. Uh, um, I hope to eventually. Uh, but so far, no, sorry. Okay, well, as and when you're ready, give us a call because I might find someone who will help co-write it for you if, if you were looking externally. That I think it, the, these stories are really good to hear. And can I just ask about succession planning and your leadership? Because you're, you're, you're not the oldest person I know, but you're not the youngest. And is there a state, have you got like, and you know, you could have a heart attack today or COVID could get you Dude, so... He's so morbid, Smith. I don't know no, what's no, going no, on. With. No, he's like I mean, insulting, like the insulting I, the guests. Uh, no, 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 no. It's I'm going for a, uh, Smith, Smith was a Smith I'm was, now going to go get a physical checkup right now. Smith, Smith, <laughs> Smith was a soldier. He understands about these things, Kimo. Um, uh, what, what, what I was driving at is like, do you have a sense of how 
do you have a succession plan for like who's going to take over if you choose to? St- and there are two scenarios: it's under your control, or something something terrible happens. And I don't regard it as morbid to think <laughs> think through worst case scenarios. And like, could you talk about your your personal career goals? It sounds like you're enjoying it at the moment. You don't you don't look like a frustrated, unhappy CEO. Believe me, I know I know some of those. <laughs> I am uh, enjoying it very much and plan on continuing to do it. Uh, there'll be a time when, and when that ends, like as everything ends to me, that will be successful when that happens, uh, organically, meaning the business sounds strange to say, but it's not dependent upon me and it is perfectly healthy and strong and functioning, uh, without me to me, that will be uh, a success. That's a great. Um, that's a great final comment, in my opinion, because I think that should be the goal. In fact, that should be not only to be the goal of every entrepreneur. I think that should be the goal of every manager to work yourself out of a job, basically, to actually make yourself completely dispensable, <laughs> and that, that you can be re- re- replaced. Basically. I'll give you one that, final. That, that, one final story from uh, my military that I've, that I've never forgotten. I asked my commander one time, how will you judge me? Uh, how will you define success? How can I be successful? And he said, I'll tell you, tell you what, Smith. Uh, the next time you pull into what's it called a firing point where in the artillery, this is where you set up all your, uh, your artillery weapons. Next time you pull into the firing point, uh, I want to see that you never get out of your Jeep and everything just happens flawlessly. Then you're successful. A great note to end on. Uh, Just before we end though, is there anything we didn't ask you about business or advice you'd give to any entrepreneur or someone who wants to be an entrepreneur one day um, that we didn't ask you that you think is important to share? Uh, Because we have people listening all over the world. Quite a lot of them are a little less experienced than you. Jump in the pool. That's what I see most often. Great ideas. They're on the edge of the pool. They never take the leap. The first step is take the leap. Awesome. Um, on that note, I think. Um, so, Keeman, do you do you want to do the the do the do the thanks to our team or anything like that? Um, well, yeah. Just obviously, as usual, thanks to everybody who listens. Smith, we have a couple thousand people listen to this every episode, so, so you're gonna have a couple more thousand people. Knowing about you um, and your story, uh, my daughter does the graphic design and the video editing. Um, so thank you to you, Magda Fantakidis. Uh, another Magda Buiskosht is an intern for us. She does PR and promotion. And then obviously we have a whole team at MBN uh, that does all the technical stuff that gets this out there and up on all the platforms. So if you like it, please subscribe at MBN, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, share it, like it, and so on. And Smith, seriously, I, I'm, I'm so glad I actually found this. Is actually, the first time I'm actually formally like sitting and actually talking to you. And I'm like, I look forward to um, seeing you at an event in the future and talking to you some more. Really interesting story. I think very inspirational. Um, again, I don't know. We did it again, Richard. We got somebody. He, he had <laughs> started the business from nothing, and look, he's got 200 billion plus company, 2,000 employees. Um, crazy, impressive story. Thanks so much for taking Thanks very the time. much. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye.